Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Rukshan Fernando. Rukshan Fernando is a former independent journalist who has now become a political commentator based in Melbourne, Australia. Additionally, he works as a political staffer for a senator in the Federal Parliament of Australia when not engaged in collaborative assignments with other independent and alternative media outlets. Prior to his current career, Fernando was a law school dropout who ended up following his passion in photography and videography. He later developed an interest in on-the-ground street reporting during the pandemic restrictions in Melbourne. I welcome Rukshan Fernando to Savage Minds. I'm extremely excited to have you on the show because I found out who you were many times during the pandemic. I'd see you reporting and I was like, oh, like mind because... (laughs) And I'm not from the political right, but that's where I saw more objective reporting on the pandemic. That's right. The left lost its mind. The left went way out there. In fact, I still can't register it all. I don't know if I ever will, to be quite frank with you. I'm on. I'm in the same boat as you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like, what's going on? Like, I'm in Italy. So we were in the center point of hell aside from Hmm. you in Melbourne, and we'll talk about that because there's a lot of similarities in in the hell we were put through, and the way in which I could not find out about anything unless I went to Telegram and WhatsApp groups. That's where reporting was happening. So I'd like, if you could, to discuss your foray into on-the-ground journalism during the pandemic. I was happily running my... I actually run a wedding photography business, so we were happily running that business, and then of course, early 2020, we were hearing about what was happening uh, in China. And then, of course, even in Italy, we were he- we were seeing that first up in, in Melbourne here on the news. And slowly, it was dawning on many of us in, in the state of Victoria that there was something uh, happening that would impact us as well. And what really led me down to the path of uh, covering these stories and it's changing from being someone who was working in the wedding industry uh, to then being an on-the-ground reporter using those same type of skills, you know, camera work, uh, particularly around uh, the use of uh, videography to capture what's happening on these streets, was the fact that a lot of businesses in Victoria, in Melbourne, initially actually supported the government's measures. And this might be the experience for people all around the world. I think initially everyone didn't really know what was going on. And most people were happy to support their governments and uh, that we we were no exception here, especially myself. Um, we, we closed our business down because that's what the government ordered. And we got behind the community and we were really involved in, the, I guess, protecting our community because, you know, it's important to us. Our families are important. And we're seeing all these horrific things happening overseas in the media. But what really uh, dawned on us very early on, actually, was that the things that the government was saying and doing, uh, there was no accountability. Um Things were happening so fast sometimes as well, and things were changing so rapidly that they'd tell you one thing, um, for instance, about masks, and a week or so after, they tell you something totally different. And in, in the middle of all of that, we had the mainstream media in our country not really too curious about why these things were changing so fast. They were just going with it. And uh, we had this thing here where it was daily press conferences from our government daily updates and it was just being accepted and i think you know when this kind of acceptance happens in society and there's no discernment there's no curiosity uh, the media is mia and they're just telling you 
what the government is just telling you. The fourth, st- the fourth state is essentially missing. And you at home, you're sitting there and you're feeling something very different. You're talking to your friends, you're talking to your family. They're telling you something very different. You're seeing these protests happening on the street. And that looks very different to what the media is portraying them as. That really like piqued my curiosity to actually go out onto the streets and see what these people were saying. And that, of course, led me down uh, to, to a very interesting journey, uh, a journey I never thought I'd take, really, as an um, independent journalist covering these things. But uh, I'm glad that happened in many ways because it opened my eyes up to many things which our governments are involved in and the media, particularly the mainstream media, are involved in where they're not you know, 100% truthful with the people in terms of their involvement in these things. And um, I think it takes citizen journalism, unfortunately, independent journalism and alternative media to uh, break these stories or to hold these type of governments and institutions accountable these days. And that is uh, the short version of how I ended up in this uh, in this profession of covering uh, news from an independent perspective. And I also saw you in the wonderful film Battleground Melbourne, which I urge our listeners not only to see, but also I interviewed the filmmaker of Topher Field when that came mm. out. Such a brilliant film. And you mentioned things that most of our listeners and certainly myself can relate to. When this all kicked off, we were all like, okay, this must be serious. We were all willing to give the benefit of the doubt to the people calling for this kind of lockdown. Believing, of course, they were telling us the truth and believing that this wouldn't become the ongoing sort of, I compare it to the suspension of habeas corpus post 9-11. But that, in fact, became the model. My theory uh, has been basically that 9-11 set up this precedent where governments can use what Georgia Agamben calls the state of exception to break all its formal rules. Hence, democracy remains in the hands of those who can scream horror, danger, pandemic the loudest, which is effectively what happened because like you, we all saw and we are all conscious that rules can change because new information comes about, but they weren't saying, oh, we're changing the rules on masking because we have this study. They were sort of bullshitting us because we now know, and we knew then, even in 2020, there were loads of mask studies that showed that unless you use this one specific, very expensive mask that must be changed every so many hours of use, unless you use that, you might as well just wear a mask with a big hole cut on it because they are not doing the job. But we were lied to about that. We were lied to, remember the distancing, was it one meter? Was it two? 1.5. Yes, yes. yes. I don't know what it was in Italy, but here it like stuck with 1.5 the whole time. But I did see in other countries, it was like one meter or two meters. So it was different from country to country. And I think because, you know, what you were saying, we're in this international environment, we're seeing doctors and experts in other countries tell their people one thing and our experts tell us one thing. And, you know, even that in itself is confusing for people and governments weren't really able to explain themselves as to why it varied so much from country to country. And this is on the at the onset. Obviously, at one, uh, later down the track, they all kind of converged into one type of narrative. But very early on, it was very obvious that all these governments were just like, I don't want to say this, but making stuff up and spreading misinformation. But, you know, in hindsight, I can say I'm pretty confident to uh, to make that claim now. 
Well, I think we were all vindicated about that claim. And people early on when I started to shift from the early days of since we were in Italy, I was telling people, be careful because soon you're going to be told the kinds of crazy things and listen to what you are being told and read, read, read. And then a couple of weeks later, when I shifted, people said, well, a few weeks ago, blah, 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 blah. And I said, yes, I take in information and I now recognize that I believe we're being lied to. I believe that there is very little scientific information behind any of the set of directives were given. And I gave many examples of this. And let's begin with the demographic of this disease or the fact that even before the Great Barrington Declaration came about, what the Great Barrington Declarants, two who have been on the show, have repeated over and over that this was the actual US plan. How that got derailed and turned into planet lockdown, we still don't quite know. What we do know is that now, in light of the Twitter files, what's gone on since December of last year to now, Rukshan, we have ample information to show that you and I were right that the governments were making stuff up, that we've been lied to. We even know as of two weeks ago that there was a whole astroturfing from the pharmaceutical industry to get vaccine mandates rolled out, that we know from the very good reporting by several journalists that have shown how, in fact, teachers' unions in Chicago and Los Angeles, for instance, using the niche words of Black American teachers or Latino Californian Teachers Association, et cetera, et cetera. These people were hooked into astroturfing from big pharma so that they wouldn't, in fact, push the leaders to make the mandates happen. How evil is that? How evil is that? And here we are. I, I'm so angry. I'm never, I'm really never going to get over the anger about this because even now, years after we've had the first hints of information and light shown on the problem. We've been getting bullshit from our leaders, have we not? No, look, I agree with you. And there is a lot of anger in the community, but it's not being translated over into it being listened to by those in authority. Now, they forced us for years to listen to them daily about the things that they were saying. Uh, They forced and coerced the populations in their countries, particularly in Australia. We had these vaccine mandates, you know, uh, we couldn't go to work if we didn't get vaccinated. Uh, people were losing their jobs. All sorts of things were happening in, in, in the state of Victoria and around Australia. And fast forward to today, and t- just touching on what you said, we are seeing uh, the way that they did this. Uh, you're talking about the astroturfing by companies like Pfizer and so on. Uh, that kind of stuff was happening in Australia as well uh, by all, all types of uh, corporate entities working with the government. And a lot of that is, of course, Uh, being kept secret uh, from the people in Australia. I think the only place we're seeing a lot of this light being shed is in the US and the UK from my understanding. But in Australia, uh, Julian, it's so difficult to get information out of our government. We have a handful of politicians in the parliament who are trying to push for an inquiry into this, like we call it a royal commission here, where we can actually get these people in front of uh, parliamentarians, um, get different experts in and actually ask them how you came about to these decisions that you made. Uh, it's not really a, a criminal type of thing. It's more of an understanding of how this all unfolded. But they don't. They don't want. They don't want to even engage in this type of thing. You would think these governments would want to uh, be, you know, square up with the people, learn from their mistakes. So next time this does happen, because they keep saying it's going to happen again, that the same mistakes aren't made. But they don't want to be put in under that public scrutiny, uh, which raises a lot of red flags. 
And uh, what we're seeing from the Twitter files and these so-called Twitter files are also pertinent to Australia because uh, very recently we found out that our government was also in communication with uh, Twitter, with Facebook, uh, with these companies and trying to get the accounts of Australians uh, either shut down or posts removed for posts that were just, uh, you know, critical of government policy. Uh, it's quite ridiculous. And they were going after our doctors here and just people that were sharing an alternative view. And uh, it hasn't really um, hit the mainstream media here. It's independent reporters like myself and others and some, you know, a handful of politicians who are bringing these stories up. Because even the media here, the mainstream media, is not curious about how all this happened. And uh, talking about astroturfing, like a lot of our media organizations in Australia they were running their the actual talent the news presenters were a part of commercials on television telling people to go get vaccinated like that is how entrenched this whole thing was in australia so uh, you have to understand that these people are not interested in now reflecting on what they were involved in uh politicians don't want to touch this topic and they just want it all forgotten about and you know us worrying about other things while at the same time you know, we're dealing with record excess deaths in Australia. I think it's like 17% higher than normal in our country. Uh, we're dealing with all types of people who are vaccine injured. And it's so hard to get those stories out there. And sadder than all of that is, it's so sad to see that a lot of the community look at those people who are suffering from this and either laugh at it or don't believe them because they've been so... Uh, diluted and brainwashed by the media and the government that they think it's all um you know these uh they in australia they call us um uh you know cookers or anti-vaxxers it's like a derogatory term almost this term cooker uh, it means someone who's a bit you know mad in the head because they're drugged up so that's how they treat people who are trying to discuss this topic in this country and you know australia is uh is many things. It's a wonderful, beautiful country, but uh, when it comes to these type of things, we are very, uh, very weak and very willing to uh, bow down to governments and uh, forget about everything and just go to the next thing. You know, it's it's very sad to see here. I think you and I had a similar trajectory where you begin to see the parallel lanes of not just COVID, but you start to look far afield of COVID and you see what's going on here is that the media on the left of center and the center is controlling a narrative in a most pernicious way. A piece by Laura Spini in The Guardian from last February, COVID vaccines deserve our trust, but Big Pharma doesn't. What in the fuck does that mean? What the hell? Mm. I mean, this is what The Guardian is publishing, and it's what the lefties call a left-of-center publication. Remember Robert Fisk's wonderful reporting 20 years ago, interviews with bin Laden, and the Independent actually meant something back then, and now they're just running stuff from Fox and Owl about being non-binary or identifying as the opposite sex. And this is where we are. We're in this really crazy place where the media on the so-called left, I have to use air quotes every time I say this, are reporting on the anti-news news. Let's jump to January 6th, which the Americans love to call this grand conspiracy. As a journalist, as even a taker in of news, I was horrified by the coverage because yes, you had the people breaking and taking selfies 
was that an insurrection? Because I've lived in Central America during insurrections. I've been shot at by the Contras. I have lived through guerrilla warfare. That was a joke that was sold to us as an insurrection, complete lies. The Democrats were allowed to expand upon that lie for months and months with the New York Times, etc., rolling out the carpet for them with this lie. Meanwhile, there was not one interview, I finally did it myself, but there was not one interview outside of the Capitol asking people there who they were, because there were a lot of Democrats there too, by the way, why they were there, what they were doing there. Did they really believe the election was a fraud? Why? Why not? I wrote a piece a month later interviewing people who had been at the Capitol because there was zero proper coverage of that day. And we know had this been turned on its head and had been Democrats inside the Capitol that you know those MSNBC cameras would have been rushing outside to interview people, even to detract from what was happening inside the Capitol. They would have been like, okay, BLM, BLM. But they were not even trying to fairly cover the voices of people outside the Capitol, which is the duty of the media because there were many people inside the Capitol, but there were thousands times more outside. That's right. Look, I mean, there's a little bit to unpack there from what you've said, but in terms of J6 and, um, you know, the so-called insurrection, and like you pointed to, a lot of us who are not, uh, who have a bit of, uh, you know, either traveled around or, you know, my parents, they're from Southeast Asia, so originally from Sri Lanka, that is not what an insurrection <laughs> looks like. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of how it was reported in the West, uh, it just baffled my mind watching that because uh, they went all out on this narrative. And it was so obvious, I think, if you paid attention to anything that was being reported, that they were really just drumming it up for political theater and political purposes. And like you said, if it was BLM in that building or the Democrats had walked into that building while Trump was in office to protest about something, they would be talking about how it was a beautiful display of the, dem the democracy in progress, right? This is how it was portrayed. And that all goes back for me the first time I realized how manipulative the media was, honestly, was during uh, the pandemic in Australia, when you would I would go to protests to cover these protests, and there would be like tens of thousands of people there. And I saw it with my own eyes. I was there next to the reporters from our mainstream channels covering these things. But that same night, I would hear those same reporters on the television say, yes, there was a like a thousand people here. And the fact that they were doing that uh, really showed you how manipulative the media can be and how dangerous that manipulation actually is. And when you then you tie that mainstream media manipulation that they're so willfully doing, uh, for whatever reason, who cares, it doesn't matter, but they're doing this type of manipulation, then they're in bed with, you know, like you said, uh, these agencies like the FBI, CIA, and worse, elected governments in these so-called democratic countries uh, it just puts the uh, the odds against people so badly that we are so disadvantaged by this that uh, it's really dangerous for the ordinary person. Like right now in Australia, we're having these discussions around, uh, we have an e-safety commissioner who used to be an employee at Twitter. She's an e-safety commissioner for Australia now. And they are really trying to clamp down on not mainstream media, but the, on the individual, on independent creators, on podcasts, we have this misinformation and disinformation bill that they're trying to pass through our parliament in Australia. And again, guess who is excluded from the clauses in that bill? The government is excluded, the councils are excluded, and mainstream media are excluded from being um, subject to those, those laws. But the everyday person is subject to these misinformation and disinformation laws. And who decides what's misinformation, disinformation? A government body. 
Like this is the ridiculous levels that we're reaching in this country. And the media, again, are not curious as to why this is because they're benefiting from it. These mainstream outlets that are fueling all of this, this is their business model now. They benefit from it. They're happy to work with the government. Like you said, 20, 30 years ago, you would have reporters holding these government folks accountable. Very rarely do we see this now on you know very like uh, topics that impact everyone very rarely do we see it it's only like something to do with a war or terrorism you might get a few breaking stories which are really important to the public but otherwise things like censorship uh things like freedom of speech there's there's no one in the media you know speaking up and and talking up up, up for these things uh, so the world has changed a lot and particularly in the west like we carry on about how great the west is and how democratic it is and how press freedoms and this freedom and that freedom, I think we're actually more screwed in the West uh, compared to other countries because people are sleepwalking into this and people believe they live in these free, uh, great open societies when in fact they are every day giving consent to governments to control their lives, control their information. And at the end of the day, uh, this will not only just impact them, but it will impact the future generations to come and it's very sad to see and australia i feel in many ways is a lost cause the current trajectory that we're on and yeah i'm just hoping that uh, there'll be some sort of change where there will be a bit more of a rebalancing of that power structure between the ordinary individual and these governments and media authorities who are working together Right before lockdown happened, I'd spent years, almost a decade, writing about the gender identity movement and the crazy upside-down nature of anti-science bullshit that was fashioned as science. And I'm sure you know this because you've been on it, I've seen for many months now, the way in which you'll even have tenured professors arguing that sex is on a spectrum. Now. When lockdown happened, I thought, whoa, we're finally going to get a break from that bullshit because maybe people will understand death is real and that science is real, right? I thought, okay, maybe people will realign and science will somehow come back into a Galilean orbit, as it were. What happened is there was a brief respite on the crazy cray, but both started being amped up in a crazy way, such that when I interview a lot of feminists who are really good on the subject of no, lesbians don't have penises. Lesbians, they're adult human females. They're not attracted to men. But then you discuss any other subject or the mishandling of media information regarding lockdown. And a lot of these same people will be very upset if you point out that the way in which the Ukraine war is being portrayed is also a bit mm, wonky. You will find a lot of people saying, oh, but I'm pro-Ukraine war. And in the same sentence, they'll say that they're very to the left. And in the same sentence, they'll say, well, I believe in rights for the poor. But wait a sec. The fact is, is that women's rights and war are anathema to each other. Women's rights and the ability of the poor to feed themselves are also anathema to each other. In fact, the poor and women are at the bottom of the totem pole whenever there are wars, as your parents know. My father lived through the partition in India, and it was the most mm. traumatizing thing, and it caused him lifelong trauma because that was one of the most violent historical acts that has been so underrepresented in the media and history books outside of India. It's very easy for people to say, oh, but the war in Ukraine is about good versus evil, while the West has glossed over, Western media has glossed over the actual Nazi links of Zelensky 
trying to paint Putin as some kind of Hitler. I mean, it's very hard to reconcile these type of differences uh, for someone that, again, has this heritage of being from Southeast Asia. Uh, we look at this world and, you know, it's interesting because I, I grew up in the West, so I'm very infused into these Western ideas about the the place of the West in, in these type of discussions. And I remember after the, 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 the civil war ended in Sri Lanka between the uh, Tamil and the Sinhalese and this, this, the Sri Lankan government went really hard and they ended that civil war, which had gone on for about 25, 30 years. There was this, uh, you know, a lot of interest from the West in terms of, well, you know, war crimes happened. Uh, this government should be held accountable, um, and there was all that kind of talk happening. And, and I'm not saying that those things didn't happen, but the, what I'm trying to point out is, people in Sri Lanka who were patriotic and happy the war had ended, they were like, well, these are the same Western people invading Iraq, uh, <laughs> invading Afghanistan. They're bombing people with drones and saying all this stuff. We're sorting out our problems in our country, and they're calling us war criminals. But they're meant to be the uh, the liberators of these other countries when they're doing things that, which are even worse. So I think there's there's a disconnect in in the West in terms of um, the way they carry on with these things, and that is really perpetrated and fed into people's minds again. I believe by the media uh, and through, of course, the, the the way the governments frame it. Uh, we can't seem to uh, look at things like the, for instance, the war in Ukraine and say, you know, maybe both sides are bad. We, like, they tell us we have to take a position. And uh, because you're in the West, your position must be, by default, against the Russians. It can't be a position anymore where it's anti-war, uh, which used to be something that was celebrated, if, if, you, if, you know, if, you, if you understand what I'm trying to say. Today, it's if you are at all uh, anti-war, you might be a far-right uh, Putin supporter. If you're not fully for Zelensky, you might be far right. But of course, you've you know, you've pointed out the fact that there are potentially uh, Nazi-linked elements or people who uh, display that kind of insignia within the Ukrainian forces. Now, even discussing that, you're seeing the mainstream media coverage of that, where they're very careful and tiptoeing around that without just being upfront about it. Um, and this is this is the problem. We we're just not honest in the West enough to uh, look at these flaws that we have. And just call it out for what it is. We have to pretend that there is this like good, evil, and it's there's no grays in between. There's no positions you can take in between. It has to be either one side or the other. And I think that's to our detriment in the West. Yes, it's exactly what I saw after the Brexit vote. Because I would say to people, but why aren't you just accepting the result? Well, are you pro-Brexit? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, you know I voted Remain. I mean, I'm talking to a friend. You know I voted Remain. But I'm not... Come on, we just saw a football match. Our team lost. Accept it. Mm. You have a lot of people just refusing those results. And then in the case of the war in Ukraine, the same exact thing happens. I don't think the U.S. should be invested in another Iran-Contra war, because this is what it's looking like at this point. Mm. We're just trading off proxy wars, one after another, and we can keep our name clean as a country, but we all know what's going on here then I don't like Glenn Greenwald. Well, you don't like facts? Because we have to start, I don't care if you like Glenn Greenwald. I actually think his coverage is brilliant. A lot of journal, of course, I'm going to have fault with him. He runs around worrying about pronouns. He hasn't investigated that aspect as much as he has NATO. But let's look at NATO. Let's look at the fact that we, and I talk to fellow Americans, we're in a country 
that if anything happened, look what happened with Nicaragua. We assaulted Nicaragua's Contras, and that was how many countries to the south of the U.S.? You had to pass through Mexico, Belize, Guatemala, Honduras, and then Nicaragua. We don't tolerate it in our own backyard, and yet we're doing that to Putin? And this is the thing is you have no historical memory anymore as well. And part of me wonders if this is not partly the fault of social media. And I don't want to just say social media as if it's some kind of animated person, but people are not taking responsibility for how they consume media. Because a lot of people will say to me, well, I haven't seen that anywhere. And I, I ask them, I do this all the time, where do you read? Because if you're not reading at least a dozen different, and I mean variegated news sources, you're not doing your job as a newsreader. We need to force ourselves to read publications we actively dislike, people we do not agree with. We should be reading them. Otherwise, we're demanding that they preach to us and that we want to be the crowd. That's right. That's my favorite publication to read. I always like, I love reading publications that I don't like because it actually gives you an insight into, you know, something that you might not necessarily understand from a certain perspective and we are missing that a lot because we are becoming more tribal uh we're, we're, we're being told to be more tribal like you can't actually read that publication because even just reading that publication means you're you know far right or something like that's kind of the way that it's being uh, it's all being uh, done now and uh like you said with 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 russia with all these things what happens is you know in in victoria we're so far removed from that of course initially when that whole conflict broke out but these days, the, the most exciting thing that governments do when these type of issues happen anywhere in the world for anything, they light up their buildings in certain colors using these LED lights. And that in many ways uh, um, signifies for me the, the way that social media is where people put up a flagged emoji or something next to their name. Uh, we do these type of things during the COVID. It was uh, putting like the needles next to your name if you're vaccinated or uh, these these signs saying stay home. Like People are being programmed into these uh, default positions, which they then do not question. And I think, you know, very early on that those parameters get set, uh, either whether it's by government or media, those parameters are set in terms of this is the uh, baseline for you to have an opinion on this particular topic. Any deviation from that, well, then either you're consuming misinformation or disinformation, or you are, you know, anti-government or anti-Ukraine, whatever, whatever, whatever it may be. So, I think it's very dangerous. Again, I, I keep using the word danger, but most of the population is being sleepwalked into this. And for for myself and for you and many others who are in, in the area of looking at these things more critically, uh, it is a source of frustration when I talk to people that they doesn't doesn't cross over to them. They think you're crazy. <laughs> they think you're a conspiracy theorist uh, just for having a reasonable uh, perspective or a reasonable de debate on a topic. I mean, the amount of times I've spoken to people about the conflict in Ukraine and tried to explain to them from the perspective of there's these type of conflicts in many parts of the world, particularly in countries like Africa. And why do you think it is that they never tell us to take a side or look at these things and, you know, care about the death and destruction happening there as well? Like it's, it's the same thing. It's the same lives being destroyed. We always have to look at things in terms of uh, how 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 it benefits the West or what particular reason the West is involved. Like we should be doing that in our countries. Like it's important to see it from that perspective. But people don't want to see that. They don't care. They're just happy to just give what they're fed and and go with that. And uh, luckily, there is a space now online uh, with uh, you know the advent of social media where it's possible uh, for independent alternative media to 
fill some of this gap. Uh, but of course, we're seeing, uh, like we were discussing before, with this misinformation, disinformation bills, that barriers are being put in place. Uh, because in terms of what the government sees with all of this, that is the most dangerous thing to them. Uh, content creators, independently thinking uh, reporters and journalists sharing their own investigative journalism on these topics, that is completely dangerous to them because they're worried that people will see a perspective that they can question uh, what they're being fed on the daily by mainstream media. Yes, except then we add in to what's happened with the CIA and the FBI control and the recent uncovery by Li Fang again. He obtained documents acquired through public records requests to confirm that Pierre Omidyar, the billionaire founder of eBay, who financed also the Intercept, he financed a specialized portal maintained by the Center for Internet Security within the U.S. government. This portal was used, I'm reading from Li Fang right now, this portal was used to facilitate the swift removal of predominantly conservative messages on Twitter and Facebook during the previous presidential election. People need to read this article. People on the left love to say how they're on the left, but they rarely have the stuff that goes with it. Talk to people around the world. They'll tell you Donald Trump was the best president for them because they didn't have one bomb because of him. And in my lifetime, he was the first president who did not expand on new wars. The first president in my life. Now, this is a big deal when you're talking about the world's population that pays the price of our votes. And I don't think this is something negligible. I think th there is no evidence that Trump is any more of a sexist than Joe Biden. We have records on both fronts to show that one pussy grabs and so does the other. Both men have been accused of sexual this and that. And this is what's tiring, is that this nonsense is rolled out to defame people just like Julian Assange, completely unproven as well. All of this seems to have been a stitch up but whatever, he's writing in prison, but let's just lambast people with falsehoods that will never be proven in the court of law in the light of day. But it's very funny how this stuff is trotted out just to put someone down at a moment and then amnesia kicks in. You've noticed that, right? No, of, of course. I mean, Trump is the probably the greatest example of this happening uh, in the last uh, decade. Uh, also, probably even in history, the, the derangement around Donald Trump uh, is next level. And uh, a lot of people in Australia, um, you know, we hardly hear about the Biden scandals just for con con comparison. But during the Donald Trump presidency, we would hear about all these stories all the time in our media. But today we would hardly hear anything about what Joe Biden's doing. And this uh, obsession with portraying Trump in a certain light um, is worrisome because I don't think it's organic. Um, there is some nefarious uh, nefarious thing going on there uh, to really disempower uh, the Trump-style politics. And I'm not saying Trump-style politics in a bad way. Trump-style politics, in like you've described, <laughs> meant that we weren't in these wars and uh, we weren't having the type of discussions we're having today about costing cost of living crisis and all these numerous things around the world that people are suffering from. And, uh, you know, maybe if Trump was in there for another term, we might be still in this situation today, but maybe not. Uh, but the way they portrayed him as a person responsible for this was in completely out of step. Because if we apply those same standards to Joe Biden, well, you know, look at the world that we're in today, and it is not a pretty place. And we have the wars, we have the threat of nuclear war, uh, we have this uh, astronomical prices for our energy. 
uh, we have all sorts of derangement when it comes to the way that, uh, you know, uh, certain discussions are happening around gender, um, particularly as it pertains to children. We have all of this under Joe Biden's watch and it, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is important. And going into the next election, I think uh, if we're thinking that somehow the media would have uh, learned their lesson and not go down this path again, I think we're going we're gonna to see it 10 times worse. And again, we're going to be told that Joe Biden is a saint and Trump is the devil incarnate. Um, or whoever it ends up being on the other side, uh, there is this, it's all manufactured. I mean, it's manufactured. If you look at this critically, everything comes across as manufactured. And it's so frustrating. Again, talk to people around me and it, they just can't see it. And it's so hard to crack that because uh, uh, it's just hard to explain, Julian. I'm just trying to remember those years of Trump presidency because every week it would be some other scandal that was not as significant as it was portrayed, but it was like the all the whole world was going to end because if Trump was there, the world was finished, you know? And today, we're not seeing that at all. So it's very manufactured. The BLM protests, to me, seemed very manufactured. And when I say very manufactured, I mean just that. Obviously, I'm not debating that George Floyd was murdered, et cetera, et cetera. All of that, not cool. But the manufacturing around Floyd was a problem. I mean, here we have a man who was a sexual predator murdered by the police. So no, I'm not saying that sexual predators should be murdered by the police, but of all people to put up on a podium, why him? And there was a lot of timing around what happened and then the creation of this big industry called BLM, the money which has disappeared since, and curiously, very few investigations into that. Yet, oh, at the same time, Robin DiAngelo, white woman supreme, becomes the goddess of all things racism. Did you not cackle reading all of that during 2020? We were re reading in interviews in CNN by an airline pilot at American Airlines who had read D'Angelo's book and was very appreciative and he thanked her. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is about white people telling each other either they're guilty or thank you. And meanwhile, racism as it actually used to be defined, has not shifted an iota. Nobody's lives have improved except D'Angelo's bank account and a lot of kudos programs within upper managerial positions, academia, etc. And the American Adolf Reed, meanwhile, during the height of the pandemic, came under great scrutiny for saying that, in fact, I disagree that the pandemic is, is, a, is affecting African-Americans because of sociological, not somatic issues. And he was beaten down for this, proverbially, because it did not meet the racist demands of the very peoples claiming to be anti-racist. So in a sense, what I'm seeing, Rukshan, is that this left has produced its own genre of racism 2.0. Yeah, it's, it's like when I was watching those protests, and we had, uh, you know, in, even in Australia, we had BLM protests, which broke our like you know lockdown rules or whatever, and the police allowed them to happen. The police here were taking knees. Watching all those things, and obviously watching the uh, the escalation of protests in America, and uh, seeing um, you know m m white people uh, on on their knees um, asking for forgiveness and all this white guilt stuff, and just the way that it all played out. Um, again very fascinating in terms of watching humans and how they behave but like there is a massive uh 
red flag there that uh, looks very manufactured and politically motivated. And it's not the organic thing that people uh, were told that it was by the media. Um, you know, like the looting, the the murder that happened of multiple people, uh, the violence that happened during that time. Uh, any any society that can't call those things out and uh, hold that to the same standards that they would expect, uh, regardless of the history of that country, uh, is problematic. There's, there's no excuse for that type of violence, but we're increasingly living in societies where all types of violence can now be excused because it, it undoes some historic injustice, which uh, what, what wasn't really suffered by anyone living today. And it's not even clear whether burning and looting shops and doing all these things will affect change. And in hindsight, like you said, we know today nothing's really changed, has it? I mean, I can't tell what's really changed in America from that. It's still the same issues that that exist there. Um, you know, like it is uh, very much so. Uh, I'm just trying to think of an example. Um, we having these issues, for instance, in Sri Lanka as well, where we have this banana republic style government. And we have these manufactured protests by these political parties, but it's a lot more transparent there because the people know what's happening. They've they've been through this for years and watching this corruption and watching how the people are used and they're just used to it now. And I, and I feel that in our countries in the West, we're becoming used to this now as well, where it's just a normal thing that happens when someone dies under certain circumstances and they happen to be a certain skin color. Well, that okays riots, uh, that okays violence. And now as a society, we have to accept that and make that a point of reflection for our society to make some massive change, whether there's a change in government or whether there's a change in laws. And it doesn't, I don't think, I don't, I don't, I don't think these things that happen always rise to that occasion. Like this is not a civil rights movement type moment. Uh, this is the death of a, a, a criminal um, regardless of the circumstances of how he died, uh, who was involved in a criminal act at that time, George Floyd. And yes, the policeman that was involved in that, if he has broken the law in any occasion, should be punished and held to account. Uh, but the fact that it's some sort of race-based thing is always, these days, uh, opportunity that our, our politicians, uh, whether from the left or the right, I believe, will try to use that to their advantage and you know the the truth of the matter is the left is more uh more willing to do this and they're more willing to go to extreme lengths to actually push this through if they see a good political advantage from it so i still think in the 2024 election cycle there will be something now i'm not a conspiracy theorist we don't know what it is but there is a moment that could spark it off where it is used for political advantage and it is these activist groups like BLM, who are always coordinating with these government um, governments and uh, certain politicians that they're close with, uh, that use these opportunities. Like, they are doing it intentionally. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but they are doing it intentionally and they will find their moment to strike. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. What we're seeing in the post-pandemic era 
in countries throughout the EU where you're having a lot of mental health crises, underreporting or no reporting of suicide. I don't know if that's happening also there, but there's a silence about what has just gone on. And everyone's expected to get back to normal. And so when there's a recession, if there's inflation, they make very little to no reference about what happened before. It's almost like the Nakba for Palestinians. We won't talk about that. Uh, we're going to be like Israeli papers, just pretending. This is what's going on within the coverage of the post-pandemic era, is that everything's sort of being treated as if, well, we don't know. The economy's just bad. It's the war in Ukraine. So they jump to blaming the war in Ukraine. Everything's the war in Ukraine. No one has actually gone through the process of investigating the links to the economy today to maybe locking people up for two and a half years. <laughs> yeah, we're in, I mean, we're in record debt here in our state. Uh, Daniel Andrews, like record debt. Like it's, it's our state has the same amount of debt as all the states combined or more. And, uh, and even the federal government, so much, so many issues with our energy pricing and cost of living crisis. And like you said, even in Australia, when you ask the government why this is happening, they will say the war in Ukraine. And it is so frustrating because uh, they never want to look back and, uh, you know, uh, discuss those issues around the spending that they did during lockdowns and all the damage that has done to businesses and just, just confidence in general. Like so many businesses were destroyed in our country during that time. So... There is, there is generally a very, very high lack of um, uh, willingness to um, prosecute that in a, in, a, in a meaningful way. But, you know, uh, I think we have to kind of accept that. I've accepted at least, and people might criticize me for this, but I've accepted that we're not going to get answers here in Australia. Maybe not for another decade uh, when it comes to those type of those type of issues. Um, but on, on, the, um, on the trans issue and... The issue around um, those those discussions we're having in our community right now, like that, is a, a big topic in Australia as well. Uh, I don't know throughout all the West, but in Australia, it's a big, massive topic. And uh, unfortunately, in Australia, what's happening is the window of opportunity for us to actually discuss this topic is becoming less and less because uh, we have a very uh, activist-style government who are very interested in controlling this debate through passing legislation uh, to make certain discussions hate speech. Um, so even for us discussing these type of topics in the future, uh, we'll probably end up with a police person uh, rocking up at our house for something we said online. Um, so it's a very, very uh, fraught times here in Australia with all of this stuff that's going on. And uh, I'm always frustrated now these days because I feel like things are moving so fast. Um elsewhere but it impacts us very rapidly here but our ability to respond to that in australia is less and less and uh i'm really really feeling it here that uh we're we're kind of losing ground in terms of being a more uh, reasonable uh, society uh with these things without going to one extreme where the government actually protects that extreme uh to the detriment of everyone else I spoke with one of your politicians, Moira Deeming, uh, off the mm. record, because she's gone under so much fire uh, yes, yeah. and treated in quite a paternalistic manner. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I was there. I was, I was there at that protest that she attended. And just so that your listeners can understand, this was a women's rights protest. And she actually attended that protest as a, rep, as her, as a woman, uh, firstly. And at that protest, what she did was she actually spoke in 
um, in support of one of her uh, Muslim friends that had uh, written a letter because she was too afraid to be there to actually uh, dis- discuss the issues that were being discussed at this rally. And that that was it. Uh, she just read a letter from this uh, Muslim lady that had given it to her to say that she is worried about how things in Australia are changing and how the rights of women to a country that she's come to Australia, where they, where she thought she would have her rights as a woman enshrined and protected, are being being taken away. But since that time, the stuff that has happened to Moira Deeming is unbelievable. And this is not from happening from our, you know, Daniel Andrews government, the left-wing style government. It's happening from our so-called, you know, conservative liberal party. So, I mean, here, for our politicians, they are even from the mainstream parties, they are so afraid to stand up to any of these changes which are happening in our society. And the woman that did, Moira Deeming, well, she she's become a, a pariah in society because the media, the other politicians have all attacked her. And to the extent of claiming that this 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 MP is a uh, affiliated with Nazis, like it's just crazy, crazy stuff in Victoria, in Melbourne. And I, and I feel really bad for Moira and... She is actually trying to defend herself in the courts uh, through pursuing defamation actions against her leader, her political, her, the leader of her political party, not even the opposition leader, but her own political party leader has implied that she is a Nazi for sticking up for women in, in our state. And the backstory to that, I can tell you a bit about, because this all mm. kicked off when Kelly J. Keene, she's a mm. women's rights campaigner from England. She came to do a tour in Australia, New Zealand. Moira showed up. What has transpired within the UK is that you've had a division about who gets to speak at the microphone. And mm. this is a huge class issue. Women in academia, in media in the UK, have gone after Kelly J. Keene for being right-wing, for being a Nazi, why? Because she was at a park in Brighton and right-wing people showed up as if we can police who shows up in a public event. All of mm. her events are in open areas. Anyone can show up. But there's been a lot of backbiting, even, I'd have to say, jealousy about the amount of coverage this woman gets because she goes out there in old school, 60s, 70s, grab a mic, speak your mind, that's what's worked for her. And she's got a lot of women to speak up on the mic who don't have access to media, who like you and I are not out there covering it and being covered. And she's been very successful with this. But what happens is you have a lot of what I call the woke feminists going after her, calling her a Nazi. And that's what drove a lot of this. And there are a few websites that I go to regularly to ROFL. One of them is called Actual Gender Critical Left, which I, I'll send you the link to later. It demonstrates what's going on here because you have a division amongst feminists, and this has been going on for decades where you had Catherine McKinnon, lawyer, Andrea Dworkin, who teamed up with the right to try and get anti-pornography laws passed. They were heavily criticized for that. Skip to today, Dworkin is deceased, but McKinnon is very pro-trans. And then none of it makes sense because if you can't identify what a woman is, you cannot make laws to protect women's rights. If you cannot identify what a woman is, you cannot possibly activate for abortion rights. Meanwhile, these women are saying on the left, but Kelly J. Keene allies with the Heritage Foundation. She allies with right-wing 
Uh, no, she doesn't. She stands in public places and lets women take a microphone. And it's really important that we notice this because this website, Actual Gender Critical Left, it's hilarious. They go after anyone who's on the right, Ron DeSantis, because he wants a law called Protections of Medical Conscience. Now, this is supposed to be bad. Why? Because he's a Republican. No, he's actually trying to keep children from being sterilized. They go after anyone on the right who will agree with them just to say, we're not like them. Meanwhile, these there's four people who populate this Facebook group. It's quite funny because one is a BBC producer and all they're capable of doing is promoting the BFF's events while trashing Kelly J. King or anyone else who might ought to say something that is the right thing and they actually agree with, but because they want to slam her as a neo-Nazi, they will simply disagree with it. It's insane. I worry about the future of women's rights when I see this because what's happening is the people who consider themselves feminists, I have to put that in air quotes, and leftists, I also have to put that in air quotes because there is nothing more anti-feminist or more not class conscious as to going after a woman who is putting a microphone in parks and telling women of all stripes and colors and backgrounds and economic abilities to speak up. And what she's been able to do, and you know this from Twitter, is that it's verboten to say that lesbians don't have penises. Before Elon Musk took over Twitter, you would lose your account because hundreds of women have. Meanwhile, these women are being lambasted as Nazis simply because they are saying that all women's voices matter and saying that we need to think beyond race. We need to think for women's rights across the board and stop making this about race. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, new, to, I'm new to all of this, like it's particularly um, women's rights issues and this particular debate. I'm very new to this. And uh, it's been eye-opening for me, the fact that it is actually a lot of feminists and these left-wing type people, uh, leftists, who are uh, supporting um, the destruction of their own rights. Uh, it, it's 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 fascinating to see in a way, but it's also uh, once you see the inner workings of this whole thing, it's like wow, no wonder it's uh, moving so fast. Um, after you know a hundred or so years since women obtained certain rights, it's all being rolled back by those very st uh, same style of feminists. Um, I spoke to a professor here, uh, Holly Lawford Smith, who's associate professor in Melbourne Uni. And uh, she was at that protest as well. And uh, since being at that protest, she's a lecturer at the University of Melbourne here. She now has to have security security um, in front of a feminist lecture um, because there's you know activists within the university, and the university itself has been uh, you know not so not so pleasant to her at times uh, because of the fact that she's just spoken out about this as an academic. Um, so when I see all of this happening. Um, and seeing the corporate capture and the way that corporations are involved in this, uh, it is, um, yeah, I, I thought, you know, what, what I saw Kelly, Kelly G. Posey Parker doing uh, was very brave uh, in today's world. And it shouldn't be. Like, it's just a bunch of women speaking. And, uh, you know, in, in the microphone, like you said, especially when she went to New Zealand, what happened to her? I'm, I'm sure you've seen how crazy and violent that became in New Zealand, where the mob turned up to attack her and uh, do all these things to her. And it's just literally just women uh, without any kind of, you know, real security or guards or anything like this speaking about women's issues. 
And that is meant to be the height of something that's a threat to society, that uh, governments and politicians are turning a blind eye to it and calling them Nazis. It's just like insane. And, uh, you know, I'm good on the women. Another example is in this Facebook group, they post about Katanji Brown, who is a newly appointed Supreme Court justice. They're basically taking the position that the recent Supreme Court ruling against affirmative action is bad because she's black. Now, wait a sec. This is the woman who, if you recall, could not define what a woman is. Meanwhile, and I had, I'm not a fan of how Clarence Thomas got into his position, by the way. At the time when this happened, I was faxing Senator Ted Kennedy's office. I was outraged about what happened to Anita Hill. As things are, Clarence Thomas and others made a decision in the U.S. which has liberals upset. But wait a sec, these are the same liberals who buy into the D'Angelo scheme of white confession, white guilt, but it's them who are editors at the BBC radio, right? It's they who have, in fact, this group is populated by mostly white women. It's fascinating to me that the racism of the left today is from the neoliberal elite class that likes to traffic in fake confessions of racism and BLM protests, the badges. They'll even have, as you pointed out, the syringe next to their name when they took the vaccine. But nothing actually changes, does it, when you pretend to be against racism? No, I mean, it's all bullshit, really. Like, I mean, just to speak frankly, like, people here call me a white supremacist and I'm, <laughs> you know, they call me a Nazi white supremacist, all these things, because they can't accept the fact that someone that looks like me uh, with my background maybe have has more conservative uh, leanings or more, you know, right leanings on certain particular topics. We're not accepted. Their, their idea of what, uh, you know, racism is, uh, doesn't actually have anything to do with race. It's about getting their way on particular topics and issues. Um, you know, for me, the real type of racism is the racism that says that because you look a particular way, for instance, I'm going to use myself as an example, uh, you shouldn't be having those type of views and thoughts. You should be on our side. And, uh, you know, this kind of concept of someone being a race traitor, that's a very um, popular thing these days. Uh, that's how they justify their their hatred for people like Clarence Thomas um, and and others who are you know don't don't fit that mold of the the typical person they'd think would go against these left uh, left wing narratives, but when they do, then all of a sudden, well, you know, this person's a race traitor. In the past, they probably would have said Uncle Tom, this type of derogatory terms, and uh, it's uh, again, it's not being called out. It's not being called out. It's being uh, weaponized. And it's being allowed. I think some of the stuff that's being said about Clarence Thomas, it is actually uh, helped by the media. And, um, you know, there, there there is this campaign now that because he's for these particular decisions, uh, especially around affirmative action, uh, you know, he he, he, he doesn't uh, deserve the protections of um, that that should be afforded to him as a, as a judge. And also the, um, the the fact that people can just now name call him and say whatever they like about him because you know he he's he's one of them he's a far right extremist. I think that I think that's uh, again a breakdown of society that we're seeing, and the use of race and racism by the far left is just to serve their own purpose and agenda. And I don't really, I truly don't believe a lot of these activists and particularly these uh, white activists actually care about um, you know. What, what colored people are actually thinking in their communities.
completely agree, and in fact, I've, I've labeled it a new level of racism itself, because it does result in actual claims of racism then not being taken seriously, potentially. Why? Because if everything is racist, nothing is racist. And this is what these asshats don't get. And this is where I have a real problem with the purity posturing amongst the quote-unquote left and the quote-unquote feminist left. And I have to deride both monikers for these folks. They're neither feminist nor leftist. How can you rant about Posey Parker because she's in a public event and people are making a Nazi salute who have nothing to do with her event? And they know this but they run with it. And there's, it's the same five actors, like in that Facebook group, the same five people saying the same bullshit. And it's funny because they're in a, uh, a little bubble. No one really cares about them. Yet, because they have enormous power within their work or on the scene because of stature and because of being white women and wealthy, they are able to sit around behind their keyboard calling her a white woman, an elite. And it's just ridiculous. Meanwhile, she was the one that almost lost her life that day in Auckland. And meanwhile, she almost lost her life that day in Auckland because of women sitting behind their keyboards who don't get off their asses because they're too busy calling everyone else a racist. And this is sort of where I want to get with you because you and I have similar backgrounds in the sense that we come from families whose parents have immigrated from South Asia. My father, <laughs> he schooled us in human rights growing up. Thank God for my father. And another thing that I recognize very clearly with this kind of neoliberal racism of these people who believe themselves to be far leftist, but they're not, is that they don't understand what racism is. I grew up in Mississippi and Louisiana. I've seen racism. Uh, no, uh, it's not racist for someone who is of color or not even to say, I think that the vaccine mandates are a problem. That's not racist. It's also not racist to say, I think that the BLM protests are a lot of smoke and mirrors. Who's behind this organization? Like coherent questions, Rukshan, that have never been asked or answered. Meanwhile, we got Don Lemon, remember that, CNN and MSNBC. They were rolling out the BLM show because I think that served as a convenient side circus to the mismanagement of the Biden administration and the Trump administration around the pandemic. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, one topic here right now, we're having this referendum in Australia. It's called the Voice to Parliament. And it's about giving uh, Indigenous uh, people in Australia, Aboriginal people in Australia, recognition in the Constitution, which is something that a lot of Australians support. But tied to that is this idea that they also will get a different uh, advisory group that advises the parliament. And to be a part of that advisory group, of course, you have to be Indigenous or Aboriginal. So we are kind of inserting this uh, racial style affirmative action into our, into our constitution potentially in a few months in Australia. So we're having this discussion around race in this country. And talking about this issue, what, we're, what, I'm, what I'm finding is, again, a lot of these left-wing uh, activists and uh, even, you know, to a, to a uh, lesser extent, uh, a lot of Australian, white Australians uh, are under this idea that uh, discussing this issue um, in, a, in a way that where you would potentially vote no to this is all because you're a racist. Like that's what this debate has been whittled down to now in our media, that it's somehow Trumpian to vote no. Um, uh, you know, this is the tactic that they use. And I'm talking to people and talking to migrants in this country, and I'm telling them, look, you have to think of this from the perspective of, 
do you really want to set a, a standard that in Australia we're going to be you know segregated in a way or we're going to be distinguished by race in our constitution I don't think that's uh, the hallmark of a modern society and the fact that we have these left-wing people trying to convince everyone that somehow separating people based on race is somehow beneficial um and whether you and if you debate that you're a racist as the default position <laughs> it's problematic and it's so hard julian to get that through to people's heads that as a as a migrant in this country as someone of color we can have views on on these issues we can have views on immigration policy just because i've migrated to australia doesn't mean somehow i'm for open borders um you know in countries all around the world people protect their borders it's not a racist position to discuss immigration uh, but these arguments so many so often are whittled down to issues of race and it's such a lazy type of political persuasion that they use in new york once a year it's a day called a day without mexicans mexicans don't show up to work and everything shuts down you have so many industries that would not work were it not for illegal labor. Now, should people be given the opportunity to immigrate? All of this we can have a discussion about, but what's never discussed, Rukshan, is what leads people to taking very dangerous boat rides or going across borders, risking rape and human trafficking of, with coyotes from Mexico and coming from much further than Mexico, by the way, coming from El Salvador and Guatemala. And no one is discussing what policies is leading to that. And no one wants to because the so-called leftists aren't doing anything but making the policies that force that kind of immigration. I mean, look what happened with the war in Syria. Look what's going on even now. You've got so-called leftists producing the very influx of refugees because the people voting for the war are now on the left of the center. Not, no longer is voting for war a right-wing maneuver. The Syrian crisis has caused the greatest human displacement since World War II, if not greater. Yeah, look, I mean, the problems that flow on from these conflicts, Syria, of course, uh, even to a lesser extent, now we're seeing potentially problems because of the Ukrainian conflict and other conflicts around the world that lead to these issues. Um, they're all interlinked. And, you know, if we're going to be a serious uh, society, uh, serious countries, uh, it's incumbent upon us to actually look at the the policies which are Im impacting these these issues, right? The rhetoric. Uh, the fact that uh, we have uh, leaders who are more inclined to supporting these type of proxy wars that that derail societies really i don't think anyone wants to you know leave their homeland necessarily but we create this uh, environment where sometimes people have to flee now in australia we had for a long time some of the most strictest migration policies like in terms of border control because obviously we're an island right uh, even though we're a large continent, we're just separated. There's no country, there's no borders to any other country. So we're lucky in that manner, but we still had to deal with these boats like you, you know, you see, you're seeing in Italy, but not to that extent. And we had some extreme measures. And what I noticed during that time was, you know, they were going on about Trump's comments. This is in 2016 around the border crossings and and so on and building a wall and all this kind of stuff, how it's so racist and deranged and, all this stuff. But it maybe it was a practical solution. Who knows, right? But in Australia, the, our enforcement of this was even more extreme than Donald Trump. But it was a policy that in many ways was uh, debated, but it worked. And both governments, the Labour and the Liberal government, kept the similar policy going because it was working. 
And uh, now, I think, especially in America and parts of Europe, there is a fear to enact policies that benefit society because going back to our previous discussion around issues like race, it's so easy to manipulate or win, a, win an election based on this emotive type um, emotive type language or emotive type policies which call on people to be you know, good people and uh, open the border and uh, accept this wave of refugees. And, you know, uh, there are even those that will say, well, we caused the conflict, so they have to come. And, you know, that's just the part price that we pay in society. Uh, there is an acceptance of so many things without actually discussing policies and how we can fix this. And, uh, you know, I'm not a, an expert in this area, but I completely feel like uh, if we actually had more serious discussions, if we actually asked that these migrant populations why they're fleeing to the, you know, the real reasons and what's happening in their country. And, you know, one thing that uh, that's, people find hard to fathom is a lot of the time that people who are coming over as refugees aren't the actual real people who are suffering in those countries. Um, it's not across the board, but uh, I know many, many instances of people who go to other countries, they're economic refugees. They're like, you know, conditions are crap in the country, but they have the means to get out of the country. Their life is not necessarily in, under threat in the country, but they have the means to go, go, to, go to the country. Now, in Italy, there's, for instance, a, a large population of Sri Lankans there. But many of the Sri Lankans that went there in the 80s and 90s um, were more so economic-style refugees That in, in the sense that they weren't being persecuted, but they left for a better life. Um, but those discussions, like they don't want to have that in the West. They don't want to hear the reality of those discussions. They just want to believe that everyone coming to the country as refugees, for instance, is because they're 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 going to get killed in their country if they don't leave. And I I feel like you know white people, these leftists, they love to believe this notion that everyone's being persecuted and that's why they're coming. They don't they don't want to understand that actually there there is truth to the fact that maybe not everyone is a, a genuine refugee. So. Uh, even the border crossing in the, in the U.S., you know, I don't believe everyone is a genuine refugee. They're opportunistic in the sense of, you know, things are really crap in, in, in Latin American countries. Look at these Americans. They've opened the borders. They don't seem to care. They want to let us all in and we're going to go there and benefit for our families. And and look, if you're if you're in those countries in under crappy conditions and your governments are bad, why wouldn't you take advantage of Joe Biden right now and these lax open border rules? Right. Why wouldn't you You'd be stupid not to? Now, Reuters is massively funded by Big Pharma, massive, and so are most news agencies today. We never had this kind of accounting or conflicts of interest that even in academia you have to fill out forms every year to state if you have a conflict of interest. When you publish as a scientist, you have to fill out those forms. Why are media outlets not held to the same kind of conflict of interest announcements as most other professions when, in fact, as we've been discussing, elections are the outcome of what media gives us. People voted for Joe Biden because they had cleansed from the smorgasbord of media the fact that he had been in business illegally. This has come out now recently with Glenn Greenwald's reporting. He had been meeting up with businesses from the Ukraine, not to mention what went on with the coup d'etat in Ukraine and Muffin Gate, if you recall that, that Biden was also tangentially linked to. But then the Hunter Biden laptop, the business linked to Burisima, all of that was removed. 
We have the secret state services of the FBI and the CIA that are cleansing who can be seen on social media. So it's lesbians say that other lesbians don't have penises are removed. But so too, if you want to share that New York Post Hunter Biden story, elections were the outcome of this kind of cleansing. And then you've got Reuters that is getting billions from pharma. How on earth are we not having any kind of oversight over what legacy media is feeding out to the public such that I've got people telling me, well, I don't like Greenwald. Wait a sec. You don't like Glenn Greenwald? Now, since when has reading the news been about liking someone? The same thing is said of Tucker Carlson, who now is reporting from Twitter. People are trying to defame him. They say, oh, but he's a racist. Excuse me? Saying racist does not make it so. Just like you claim to be against men who say that they have a female penis. You say that that's bullshit, but now you're going to do the same bullshit in your own hue? And this is the problem. I think a lot of people don't want to walk the walk outside of their very, very narrow path that they walk. And how can we, as journalists, get people to see that? Because I find myself struggling with this these days, where I'm covering the gender stuff a lot. I have to take breaks from it because it's too crazy for me. But then when I do cover it and I talk to people who say things like, I just think Trump is a racist, he's sexist, he wants to keep women in a cage. But where's the evidence of that since Trump is the only president we've had in over a decade who knows what a woman is? Yeah, look, I mean, I think platforms play a role in this. Um, but before I get to that, I was, I had the uh, opportunity to go to Davos, uh, I think about two years ago now, or the first economic world economic forum back after the lockdowns. And the amount of press that had their own stands there and the involvement of the press there with these kind of global corporate organizations, they are just, it's all, you know, it's an incestuous type of uh, relationship with the media and the corporations and just how everything is interlinked. And to unravel that, I think is uh, almost impossible um, in terms of the way that they've structured that now. Uh, in terms of uh, as journalists and, you know, um, citizen reporters, what we can do is uh, working with, you know, luckily for me, you know, people have their different views on Elon Musk, but I think having these platforms where you are more freely able to express ideas and then leveraging those platforms um, becomes very important. There is a bit of a war going on uh, in terms of the social media space and who can have a voice in those spaces. And uh, independent journalists, I think we are getting more uh, crafty, uh, more switched on. The technology has improved. We're able to reach more people. Um, and, you know, thanks to people like Elon, I'm not sure what your views of him are, but I, I believe just the fact that he has kind of liberated Twitter a little bit more has made a difference in this space because still I truly believe there is a silent majority out there that most people are reasonable people, good, hardworking, God-fearing, reasonable people who, when you present this information to them without all the filters and glitz and glamour of the corporate media, they can look at a story and be like, huh, yeah, I mean, that kind of makes sense <laughs> at a human level. Like that, that resonates with me. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's what a lot of this misinformation, disinformation stuff that we keep hearing about from governments currently because, you know, five, ten years ago, you'd never hear them talking about these words, misinformation, disinformation. And that's what all governments are really talking about now. 
and that is just a um another way of them saying that they hate the current rise of independent and alternative media who are calling them out um they want to see it destroyed and they want to see those voices silenced and you know it's like a david and goliath thing uh but i feel like we have a goliath on our side in terms of elon because he's still from that corporate world he's still from a, someone that's involved heavily with government and government contracts and so on but there is a streak of a a bit more of a i don't want to say childish but you know he's spending his money and getting this platform and saying like you know do with it what you want but uh you know what the consequences of that yet i don't know but i think it's it's a good thing and it's necessary and hopefully it leads to uh, more people getting involved in this because i don't think the individual uh, can go up against the corporate power uh, you need these uh you know um people with wealth or positions of power to actually also share some of the views that we share uh, to help us actually combat what's happening we are no longer in that pre millennial world of left and right the left and right are scrambled if i read one more feminist who believes herself to be on the left to lambast tucker carlson as a racist i begin to believe that these people are themselves racist tucker carlson is more left-leaning than they who decry him he has been banging on since lockdown about workers rights about the poor about starvation about mental health I didn't see this coming out of the nation. I did not see this coming out of Jacobin because Jacobin was too busy, along with The Guardian and La Repubblica and all those left of center publications pushing lockdown. So none of them were doing pieces on why are we taking money from Big Pharma to write about this. The Guardian took quarter of a million dollars to publish pieces on trans youth. I uncovered that myself in my own research. I mean, we are not asking why we're getting the information we're getting. So I always bring it back to 9-11 because you had some very strange things happening at the beginning of this millennia. And I don't know if you recall Jason Blair, who was fired unceremoniously from the New York Times for plagiarism. Now, he plagiarized. Yeah, he did. He's written a book about it, I believe. But he was fired. Meanwhile, Judith Miller, who ran those lies that buttressed, along with Jeffrey Goldberg's bullshit uh, from the Atlantic, to go into Iraq and Afghanistan, but making false claims in order to make a false basis for a war or two wars, these two were allowed to not only... Miller was allowed to resign, even though what she wrote was bullshit, Goldberg was promoted to the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. And these women who tell me I would never publish in the right wing because this is another argument going along uh, feminist discourse on the left. Well, I wouldn't publish there, but I would publish here. Wait a sec. You just published in a right wing paper. A lot of the papers that are coming up today, like Unheard, are right wing. They're not left wing papers, but they will themselves say that's good, that's bad. Because the left-wing media is not publishing anything other than how great my female penis is. That's what they're running with. They're not publishing gender-critical feminist pieces. They're just not. And people are seeing the horror of what it means to have pushed for 15 years childhood transition narratives. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I think we had an article recently where some of the insurance companies here were hesitant to actually um, insure these people carrying out this type of thing. Um, and I think how fast and rapidly it's moved here in terms of the rights of parents when it comes to this and the way that the government is actually trying to remove the parent from the equation. 
and make it a decision a, a kid makes uh, with the help of you know teachers or advisors or psychiatrists or whatever uh, the 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 access to these type of life altering um, surgeries um, at such a young age is so easy um, here that uh, when we see the after effects of this in you know 10 15 years <laughs> it's gonna be horrendous I believe um you know like I I don't understand uh, how it's got to this so rapidly here and a lot of people, my friends who have children, um, they're worried. They're worried about what's happening around them, but they're too afraid to speak about it. And I don't know if that's the experience that you're having, uh, Julian, in you know, Italy or uh, other countries that you're watching. But I feel like a lot of parents are afraid to speak about these issues. And if you and if you look at other countries again, I keep going back to other countries all the time because I feel like the West is on a different trajectory. Uh, it's not like that, and kids are growing up normally and they're not being exposed to these things. And I don't know if we've reached a point uh, where we're so progressive now that it's just, you know, uh, just unhinged, this progressiveness that we're going through. Like, it's just progressiveness for the sake of progressiveness. Um, you know, I understand that we need to care for people's rights and, you know, make sure everyone feels happy and safe and protect certain things. And, you know, whether it's like the the gay marriage debate we had here a few years ago and all those things and the progression of that. I, I get all of that and I, I understand the need for this and um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm open to all those ideas. But sometimes these progressive things can go so, so far that, um, you know, how do we walk it back? And this is such a such a thing that when you're making these alter, alterations to human bodies, to little children, that they don't even understand what they're really doing, do they? But, 10 years, 15 years from now when they're grown up and maybe they can't have children anymore, whatever whatever they've done to themselves, like who is responsible for that? <laughs> Especially if parents are taken out of the equation, like is the government going to, you know, stand up and say they, they're responsible for it? I highly doubt it. And uh, we're just walking into this minefield that, yeah, I, I, I don't know what the consequences of it are. It's just, it's disturbing to talk about, to be honest. One thing that these woke karate are missing is the class analysis. And who's taking up the class mm. analysis? Not them. They don't care about class. They care about race. But it's the same thing. You're getting those same 70 wealthy percent African-Americans going to Harvard. Those are the applicants. 70% of applicants to Harvard who are African-American mm -hmm. come from uh, up to do well-income in classes. These are not poor people. So let's worry about why the poor people in the United States who are actually gifted and able to do the studies mm. can afford to. Why aren't we discussing that? That's the affirmative action that has to happen, economic. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Like I could not live my life if I kept thinking, Like I don't think I'd be at the position I am just in general, if I had this attachment to like the history of colonization in Southeast Asia, for instance, like this is like same kind of deep, dark history sometimes. But if you live that way, you can't progress and go forward. And it's so sad that these kids are being framed in this 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 society where they're told, especially in Australia, these indigenous are told that um, they can never be more than them what they are because of what happened you know, a couple of hundred years ago, they can never be more like that is always a part of your identity. And it's one thing to respect and understand history, but I don't think you can move forward with that. And I take great um, 
um, greatly offended, really, by these, um, again, white Australians mostly, that uh, are preaching this nonsense to these people that they are this perpetual victim class. Uh, it doesn't work. I don't think it works. And, uh, you know, if if Aboriginal kids, for instance, left Australia and went somewhere else, they would more, more so likely prosper. Whereas if you're in this environment where you're being told that you're not you're not capable because of history, it's it's problematic. And I think that goes to the Harvard thing um, where you said that <laughs> it's really uh, these wealthy African-American kids who are getting the opportunities from affirmative action and not these poorer kids who are growing up in these um, these black neighborhoods, for instance. Uh, they're, they're still facing the same suffering and the same consequences. And I think all of that has to come down to the issue of mindset and the creation and the perception that society puts out that people are victims. Uh, we need to move on from that. And I've I've flourished a lot as a person by not attaching myself to that history. And I'm so grateful my parents actually uh, didn't really push that stuff onto me as some sort of work you know, thing. And the schools that I went to during the 90s in Australia weren't preaching that nonsense. Like I came to this country in Australia from with my parents in the 90s and I went to school and I didn't have these problems, but Sri Lankan kids who are born to um, Sri Lankans like my age that grew up here, their kids are now going to school and learning that they are oppressed. If that, I, don't, I don't know if that makes sense, what I'm trying to say. So kids of my generation, people born to me that grew up without any of those impediments are now today being told at school that they are somehow repressed because of their skin color and history. Like it is, it is not genetically inbuilt into us, these, these, these feelings that we have where we can't progress and, um, you know, to achieve higher, higher, higher standards of living. It's not built into us um, where today these teachers, these left-wing teachers are indoctrinating kids into feeling like they're, they're repressed when they're not. Um, that's the, I mean, that's one of my pet hates that uh, I, I hate seeing it, and I think it's destructive to um, to many people of all all parts of the world. Yes, and it's actually incredibly racist. It's racist. Yeah, it is. It is. It, it is actual racism. It is actual racism. It is the actual racism that I think exists in this world. That is racism. Uh, I have not experienced the racism that you're seeing in these movies and stuff. Like I know that I know that type of racism exists but it doesn't exist to the way that it's being portrayed uh, in society. The actual racism in this is this belief that people are somehow always a product of their history and all these things, and we have to give them a helping hand, and we have to you know, create all these things around them and wrap them and protect them and all these things, and really just leave us alone. We, we, we know our history. We know all these things, but we're, that we're, that's not what we're doing today. We're, we're here to get ahead. We're here to have good jobs. We're here to have safe living. We don't want to have crime. We don't want. We want to have our governments not be corrupt. Uh, we want to live in peace. That's all we want, just like everyone else. And we don't need you to worry about our skin color and our history. We don't give a crap. <laughs> Bye.
Oh, 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 oh,